look, you need to break stories. You need to get exclusive interviews, stories that you've developed yourself at the very least. If you're not doing that, you're not ready for the next level. Today's media landscape is a digital environment always in motion, presenting new opportunities and challenges for storytellers of all kind. So what does it mean to be a journalist in 2023, and how do young journalists succeed in an industry and tell meaningful stories? Larry Potash is a reporter and anchor for WGN-TV in Chicago. He's joined us today to provide his insight into the state of journalism and what it takes to tell a good story. He'll also give advice to the next generation of reporters, news anchors, and documentarians on the important skills needed to thrive in modern media production. This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. Larry Potash, welcome to Campus on the Common. Thank you. So you're an Emerson graduate, which is fantastic, but you're also on-air talent at WGN. You went from Emerson to Chicago. How did that transformation take place? Well, it was Emerson to Market 130 Longview, Texas, to Market 91 Evansville, Indiana, to Market 52 Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then to Chicago. All those small markets in a span of four years, which now you can't do because they sign every kid to two-year contracts. Uh, But I was fortunate, and I was always doing the two tracks, working on my job and working on my career, and always thinking two jobs ahead. And I think the one important element, no matter what you're doing, is to get critical feedback on your work, because it's very easy to put a piece together, show it to your mom, and she's going to say, Billy, it's fantastic, (laughs) but that's not the analysis that you need. And just because the news director hasn't come along and said, hey, that sucks, uh, doesn't mean it's great, doesn't mean it's terrible. You need to get advice and insight from somebody who you respect to tell you what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, keep learning from that, and get to the next level. You're the anchor for WGN Morning News in Chicago. In fact, that's the TV market's longest-serving news anchor, a position you've held since 1995. When you arrived in Chicago, did you immediately take that role? No, I arrived in 94. They were, believe it or not, just starting the morning show. So we that was a new concept, at least for WGN. And um, they just were not happy with the anchor, and I they said, you're, you're, you're filling in. I said, great, when? Tuesday. And so... I've been there ever since, uh, so it's a, it's a long run on the same show. I was doing the morning and the midday and doing investigative pieces, and at some point as the morning show grew from one hour to two hours to six hours, I moved off the midday, and now I do six to ten in the morning. Six hours? I, I lecture for four hours, yeah, and yeah. I'm dead. I can't imagine going six yeah. hours well, on I'm just TV. doing the four, but still, that... Who's doing four hours? I mean, the average anchor does a half hour at 11, half hour at 6, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, it's it's like being on a job interview for four hours every day of your life, and you, you just come out of there mentally fried. But the flip side of that is I'm not digging holes, right? <laughs> it's a fun job. It's an important job, and I enjoy it. And you've been doing it for a while. You have some experience, yeah. which certainly helps. But, you know, for such a long time to be on air, how do you prep for that day after day after day? You know, for me anyway— I am constantly looking at the news beginning to the end of the day. I'm always on it. It's always evolving and I'm I'm always so I don't want to walk in one day and be surprised. And I'm also reading and I think it's important that I think a lot of students I've seen look at this like a trade. This is how I hold the microphone. This is how I talk on TV. This is what a soundbite is. Anybody can do that. I can teach you that stuff in 10 minutes. 
what students really struggle with is figuring out what the story's about. Because what they do is they show up to an event with a metaphorical shovel and they shovel along what they see. Why? Because they know television, but they're missing the journalism. And so I say, what you're doing is C-SPAN. C-SPAN is just unfiltered, this is what's going on. And nobody watches C-SPAN because it's boring and it's complicated. So when you're going to a story, you need to figure out what the story is. What is the problem? What is the solution? What person in a position of authority is interfering with this problem or solution? And you need to tell that story and challenge authority and not just shovel along some video. Well, that's that's fascinating. It's interesting because when you look at most mainstream news, it's really impersonal. It's sort of, you know, <laughs> it, it's yeah. almost as if they're taking something off the wire. They're adding a little bit of local flair and just calling it a day. Now, you've created something called the backstory, yeah. which is a lot more in-depth. I'm wondering, could you tell us about the genesis of that particular project? It's history through a contemporary lens. So this also plays into journalism. I'm still dealing with current issues on some of these stories. And so, for as an example, we did a story on veterans in World War II who were exposed to radiation during testing in Hiroshima. But we also featured in that piece a young artist who was taking those photos from the atomic tests and creating some mosaic artwork, to make a long story short. And so we're telling the story through a contemporary lens, but also telling the story about these old veterans. And so these are 10-minute pieces, which in our world is an eternity. It is a whole other skill set we've discovered, uh, which I can talk about later. But it evolved from you know my, my regular job of doing the Minute 30 news package all my career to getting to WGN, doing some investigative stuff, some long-term features that were four minutes, right, which is also an eternity to many people. And I just kept pushing it to five minutes and seven minutes. And, and again, as I say this, stories are not about time. They're about timing. I love when I go to a producer and I say, this piece is seven minutes. They say, well, can you make it four? I said, you haven't even watched the piece yet. I've seen four-minute pieces that feel like 12 minutes, right? It's all about timing and the pace. So uh, this evolved into doing longer pieces, more theatrical pieces in terms of how we shoot them and edit them and tell those stories. And I just enjoy it. So, But to get to that level, you've got to do really well on those 90-second stories in your career, covering your house fires and your whatever. And to your point, I agree with you. The storytelling's pretty flat in local news right now, and I don't know why that is. I mean, I think some of that comes from the top with the news director saying, hey, your story stinks. Let's write it more theatrically, and, and let's try and figure out a way to tell that story better. So when you say more theatrically, are we going along with well, sort of like a three-act structure? Not, not necessarily, but just t- telling the story through a character, let's say, as opposed to – this is what I – I, I tell students, I say, I know, I know what's going to happen when you go to journalism school. They're going to give you some newspaper, and they're going to say, turn this into a wire copy and broadcast style. That's perfect for your 20-second VO on a liquor store holdup. But if you're doing a package, you have a license to be a little bit more poetic, a little more creative. Writing should be fun. Tell me a story. Don't just string sound bites together. Tell me who these people are and why I should care. Because when you're writing a story, and this gets into the question of who's your audience, I don't, I don't get caught up in the market research of what that is. Because what I do is the opposite of what I think a lot of students do. Subconsciously, when you're in Rockford or Springfield, Massachusetts, and you're interviewing these people, and depending on the story, they're very grateful that you're there to give their cause exposure. And subconsciously, you start running the story for them. 
instead of writing the story for people who don't give a crap. If you can get that person, now you have everybody. So how do you do that? You do that through emotion and crystallizing the viewer benefit, which, again, gets back to my initial statement that students struggle with. They don't know what the problem is because news is what's new, and you can't know what's new if you don't know what's old. So you can't walk in here and just talk about holding the microphone. You have to read. You have to, like, listen, you can't know everything about everything, but, geez, make an effort. <laughs> right? Um, read, uh, you know, some contemporary political science. Read a biography. I mean, and again, I always say this. This is not about ingesting some facts so you can regurgitate them for some multiple-choice quiz and high school history exam. It's making your brain a better tool. It's going to make your brain stronger and a better critical thinker. So then when you're looking at a story, you can figure out what the problem is. And when someone is trying to spin you in an interview with some BS, you can spot it and say, I know what you're trying to do. Here's my follow-up question. This is where reporters really struggle. It sounds like understanding when when is a story an actual story sounds like that's a real challenge. Again, my, my point that's students struggle to figure out what this is. So, okay, I had to think about this because, you know, much of it is instinctual at this point. Like, okay, so what is it? And this didn't come off of any textbook out of Emerson College from 1980, the 1980s. I said, okay, news is what's new, what's unique, what's the problem, what's the solution, and what person in a position of authority is contributing to that problem or solution. Now, write this down on an index card, and then I explain what an index card is. <laughs> and I said, when you're out doing a story, you check off all these boxes, and then you won't miss all this stuff, and send me your resume reel in June, and me kicking it back to you and say, this could passable if you fix A, B, C, and D. Let's, let's get that feedback from someone you trust early on in the process. What's your idea? Let me see your script. What's your plan? So the backstory and the backstory is it's history, it's, lo it's a longer format, you get into the more of the emotional side of things. How do you bring out the emotion in the story? So some of the pieces we did beyond the Salem Witch Trials and Lexington and Concord and the, your traditional stuff, we do some conceptual pieces sometimes. We did one on race, and I interviewed a professor, which normally you'd want to do, but then we realized he had a great personal story of persecution in his neighborhood and so on and so on. I don't remember all the details, but that's how you, you need to have the viewer identify with the person, at least in a sympathetic level, if, if no other way. And so I, I think that is how you personalize a concept. So you're not doing a book report on video. <laughs> and, and some students do the opposite. It's all, it's all emotion and there's no substance to it. It's like, bring me in with, it happened uh, on a dark and stormy night to Billy Joe Bob and then get into your book report elements. Here's what's new. Here's what's unique. Let me give you some perspective and bring it back to how Billy Joe Bob lived happily ever after. Again, appealing to people who normally wouldn't give a crap. So when I'm doing race, I was concerned about, okay, there's a certain segment of the audience that's the bell's going to go off and they're going to be angry. They're going to change the chance. So I try to, I'm very careful about how I approach that. I want to, I don't want to, I don't want to preach. I don't want to be on a soapbox. I'm going to bring this in through history and psychology and facts. And I try to 
make that case and you can see the piece online and see if I did a good job. Um, so that's that's one example of taking what might be a dry book report concept into something more personal. And this is another piece, the conspiracy, we did a concept on conspiracy, conspiracy theories and we found this kid who had been a conspiracy theorist who was reformed and had seen the light. And so we kind of focused on him a little bit. And so it's looking for the character. And sometimes I think, especially in news, we just grab the first guy we see. And sometimes you might want to throw that away and knock on a couple more doors. What I really like about what you're talking about is it sounds like we're looking for a character. The character has a challenge. They have an objective. There's the emotional up and down as they're pursuing that challenge. Eventually, there'll be a climax. In the process of a story, we generally fall in love to a degree with the character, and we watch how they're transformed from the first act through the, the last act. In the process of this, the audience is transported. And it's part of that transportation. It's where the willing disbelief of reality, it's like, I'm just going with the story. I'm all in. You know, it's, I tell my students, have you ever daydreamed? That's what a good story can do. You're not thinking about anything else other than that story. And if you've done it, you've done your job well, assuming, of course, that there's an actual a point to the story. I've always been under the impression that journalists stay away from that world because it's, it's very closely aligned with you know, the, the fictional world. But one of the things we're talking about, or at least your specialty with backstory, it's, it's narrative journalism. How is narrative journalism different than other forms of journalism? I'll tell you, and, and some people think that this can only be done in 10-minute pieces or half-hour pieces, but you can do it in any length of time. Something that isn't really taught in journalism writing per se, and something that is certainly found in fiction, is the element of surprise. And that's what I look for. I have a list, a long, 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 long list of story ideas, and I go through them and I, I look and say, what here surprises me? And so when I find those things, I know I have a, a good story, and I build those when I'm building my blueprint of my script. So good writing doesn't mean, hey, I need to go get the thesaurus off the shelf and find a different word for this. I don't, I don't care about any of that. It's about what's my idea? What's my approach? What do I include? What do I throw away? And not just one element of surprise, but multiple. And, and you have to set it up. And I do that every day, actually, more or less. I have on the morning show that I do, I do two signature segments that are like 30, 50 seconds long. And you remember, remember Paul Harvey? Mm -hmm. So most students would not remember him, but he used to do this thing, the rest of the story. And he'd tell you the amazing story of George and George and this and George that. And you're like, oh my goodness, who's George? And at the end, he reveals George Washington. And now you know the rest of the story, which is kind of what led me to backstory. So I look for that and I write these stories that way. So I tell the writers, if you're writing a kicker, you're assigned a kicker story, the fun story that leads into weather so we have something to chuckle about, your punchline should not be in the first sentence like it's a liquor store holdup, right? In the liquor store holdup, you can do the who, what, when, where, why, how in the, in the, in the lead sentence. But when you figure out what the punchline is, you set it up and then you knock it down. And I do that in backstory and packages for things that aren't necessarily funny, but it's something that catches you by surprise. You think we're going to go this way, and I take you that way. I love that. To me, that sounds like, you know, what's the twist? What's the yeah. climax? Yeah. From there, I'll have my students build out the rest of the story. So to your point, what's the climax? What's the twist? How do we get there? And then, of course, the hook for the first you know, few seconds. If there isn't a good hook, we're going to lose our audience. 
How does your staff go about creating the hook for the story? There is no staff. It's me, and it's uh, my photographer, editor. I come up with the ideas, most of them. And he's, of course, always pushing the visual pieces, and I just I go by story, and we compromise. And so we've done conceptual pieces on coffee. We, we tend to lean towards things we're both interested in, but um, he just thought it'd be fun to go shoot coffee brewery and all that. So, so we went and did that. And then I, uh, do I know what the backstory or the history of coffee is? No. I had to go do the research. And what surprised me? I go, oh, this is interesting. And uh, so that's how these stories uh, get born, I, I, I suppose. Yeah. As a photographer, videographer, I'm loving the fact that the staff is two and the other half is <laughs> right. a photographer. That's fantastic. <laughs> right. You know, some photographers and editors are just more technically minded. And this guy is a full-blown producer, artist, cares about, about it. And, and so it makes a difference. How can we make this better? And what ideas can we visualize? Instead of showing a black and white photo of historical figure A, let's go grab a guy and put a Civil War hat on him and we'll just do something more alive. So for, a good example is we did a piece on the 72 Munich Olympics. Now, you can't show any Olympic video and you can barely show any Olympic pictures. So how do we do this? And we came up with this idea to have the graphic artists kind of do these sketches that reenacted some of the key moments of the game that we can't show with the scoreboard changing and the clock ticking down. And it worked. And so, again, gets my point of just when you think you know it all, <laughs> you've been in the business a long time, there's always something new to learn. And we had to learn how to slow things down in a 10-minute piece because it's a lot and you have to take breaths. And it's about pacing. And when you feel you're making a transition, all right, how are we going to either visually or text-wise make this transition? So it's a learning process. And just when you think you know it all, there's always something new to learn, which is what I love. You know, speaking of the learning process, one of the things that just really intrigued me to bring back the videographer is the convergent skill sets. He's not just a photographer. He's not just a videographer. There's some teamwork going on. And he's, to some degree, he's sort of exceeding the expectations or the market expectations, if you will, of what that position is all about. I wonder if you could talk about the value of convergent skills for those who want to get into the journalism field. When you say convergent skills, what do you mean specifically? So these days we're teaching our journalism students, you know, you might think you're just a, uh, you're going to write for a newspaper, but oh no, you've got to be prepared for podcasts. You be, have to be able to do a live shot. You have to be able to produce it. You got to know how to use a camera. Whereas back in the old days, when I went through photojournalism school, we never went anywhere near a microphone. It's, you know, pick up your Nikons, get some Tri-X, go out in the streets and start shooting. Well, things have evolved since then, and that's, you know, I've always thought the market expectation for Emerson grad was you could parachute them in, and they're going to solve all your communication problems. Now, that's not really fair, and it's not based in reality, but that's the perception. In the classrooms, you're learning a spectrum of different skills. Sometimes they seem directly related, other times not. But through the process of going to class and getting involved with extracurricular activities, you figure out, okay, here's the concept, here's the practice, here's how I put them together, create my demo reel, so that when I'm applying for that job, you know, here's my experience. You can see what I'm capable of. But what's interesting is when the freshmen come in, and I'll ask in sportscom, hey, what do you want to do? I want to be a broadcaster. Great. What skills do you need? Well, I need to be able to talk about a sport. Yeah, what else? Uh, I don't know. With journalism... 
I've heard the same basic thing. So as an experienced journalism, when you give advice to people who want to get into that, what's some of the things you tell them? Like what skills do they actually need to be successful these days? Yeah, I'm not really good with the technical aspect of it because I don't really have to do it. I'm fortunate that I don't have to necessarily do it anymore, but for the next generation coming in, obviously the more skills you can learn, the more valuable you will be. But I think ultimately, at least from my world of broadcast journalism, they care about your storytelling, which does involve video and so on. But what I always find myself telling students is after I have this conversation with them is now I want you to go home and I want you to watch TV, news, documentaries, and so on like a TV student, like a journalism student, and not like just a regular consumer just watching about it and not thinking about it. Like, how long was this shot? Why did you choose this shot and not that shot? Why did you use this music? Why did you use it here and not there? That's how they need to be looking at at a piece of television. Was this character a good character or a bad character? How would you have done it differently? Because again, I'm, I'm sorry, but in terms of technical stuff, I am... I was a one-man band in Longview, Texas. I could do it all, but they don't use three-quarter-inch decks anymore. <laughs> um, and so uh, unless I'm in a time machine, I, I don't think I'd be much use to anybody. Uh, there, there are plenty of people at WGN who handle all the technical elements for me. But for, to your point, I think students need to learn as, as much as they can because that's where the industry is going. It's paring down, and, and, and you should be a jack-of-all-trades if you can be because it's going to open up the most doors for you. And that's essentially what I tell my students yeah. that, you know, from an employer's perspective, I can hire the, the person who can talk in a microphone. And then I could also hire another person to be a producer and another person right. to be a shooter. And that's three salaries. Yeah. Or I could hire the one person that is right. the jack of all trades who I can say, go solve my problem. Yeah. And it gets done. Right. And it's those convergent skills, which yeah. that, to me, I see that as the differentiator, especially for those just getting into the market. Yeah. And it, I, I see students as having an advantage because they grew up with. Shooting and, and being on camera. Where when I was when I was a kid, nobody had cameras. Being in front of a camera, I just I didn't get it. I, so you want me to stand here and talk to this piece of glass? It was crazy to me. Like I knew I knew how it worked, but I certainly was not comfortable with it. And and so now these kids come in and they know all the digital stuff. And like anybody over, like we're all clueless. My my, my colleagues who are of my age. So in that sense, I, I always look at them as having an advantage. But from your perspective as a teacher, I know they have so much more to learn. They're digital yeah. natives. They yeah. you know they have more experiential knowledge based on literally just playing with a smartphone. Yeah. When they come into class now, I'm I'm blown away. Yeah. And it actually it, it makes being an instructor here so much fun because. Yeah. You know, they might not have all the technical knowledge or, you know, how do I how do I compose a frame? What's the 180 rule? Blah, blah, blah. All the all the elements that are digital grammar. I get to teach them that. Yeah. But with their own creativity and the fact that they're used to going out and exploring their creativity using a smartphone or perhaps a mirrorless or a digital camera, whatever, they're already pushing the limit, if you will. Mm-hmm. So when we give them an assignment, we give them a little bit of knowledge and say, run with it. It's amazing what we get back from them. Yeah. It's, it's just so much fun here. I'm looking at narrative journalism, and I'm seeing that's a direct parallel to documentary work. Right. I know I look at what I do as there are many documentaries. That's how I describe it to people when I'm pitching it to, to them. It is maybe an advantage we have over the digital world of TikTok and Twitter is we're telling you a story. And everybody loves stories. Stories are valuable in marketing, in law, and so it's an important skill to have. And I'm, it never ceases to amaze me how terrible some people are at <laughs> Somebody like a college president gets up and goes to the podium 
and it's it's a disaster, <laughs> right? And they're winging it, and they're boring everybody. And I have friends who are clergy, and I tell them, listen, just because they're staring at you doesn't mean they're listening and doesn't mean you're hitting it out of the park, right? They're a captive audience. If this was TV and you couldn't see them, believe me, they would have changed the channel. And so it's important, no matter what you have to say, to try and frame it you know, as a story or a series of stories. I talked about stories are about timing, not time. And producers are notorious for this has to be 90 seconds and this has to be 30 seconds and blah, 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 because people won't pay attention longer than that. And I had an instructor say, listen, people went to see the movie Titanic 12 times and it's three hours long. Why? Because it's not a three hour movie. It's a series of scenes, a series of vignettes, as all movies are. And so, again, it gets back to pacing and timing as you're telling a story, whether it's 10 minutes or 60 minutes. That is fantastic. And, you know, one of the things I've always wondered about, having been a photojournalist and, and, you know, formally trained in that and understanding the ethics and the rules, I was sort of like, okay, here's a line I cannot cross. I cannot stage a photograph. I cannot say, hey, could you do that again? Big no-no. Later on, I became a commercial photographer, and it was such a joy because I could say, that looked great. Do it one more time. I mean, keep doing it till we get the right shot. Flash forward, we look at Ken Burns, we look at Spielberg. We've got the fictional narrative, we've got the documentarian. What I've discovered is the skill sets are essentially the same. It's just the script's different. Now, having said that, when we look at you know Emerson College, we've got an amazing visual media arts school here, and we've got a journalism school, and these are different schools within the college. I'm wondering from the journalist perspective, is it an intrepid ground when you start getting into the narrative journalism, looking at recreating scenes and things like that? Are there any lines that you can't cross when you're putting that story together? Well, that's a good question. Like there are times where we don't have a photograph of the person and we feel we need that. And so we would hire an actress in in one particular instance to portray a slave. Now we don't have some kind of like a mini act script where she's going to act something out with line. It's just, it's more artistic. It's more sort of esoteric where she's looking into the sky or something, something of that nature. So more to, more along the lines of an illustration? Yeah, more of symbolic, right? So could you do that in news? Probably not. I mean, the lines have moved over the years a, a little bit, but I think the viewer gets that, listen, I'm not saying this is video of the actual slave. Like they get it. So I'm not being deceitful. And I think that that's really what's important there, that you're honest. But it's interesting you say that. It made me think I was in a documentary about John Wayne Gacy because I'd done a number of investigative reports. And the producer was saying, could you say that again, but say it, blah, blah, blah. No, I'm still a journalist. I don't know what you're doing, or, or and I don't care. But I'm still a journalist, and I'm not going to be your, you know, your trained monkey. And <laughs> if, if that's a tough edit for you, then I'm sorry. You'll have to figure it out. That's what I have to do. <laughs> Share the pain. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, that, that's fantastic. It's actually it's reassuring it here because, you know, these days where people are really questioning the media. And it's all fake news. And if they don't, you know, if they're not reporting on something I agree with, it must be a lie. And, you know, it's such a difficult environment to operate these days in terms of journalism. So we've got the, you know, what should be the or what traditionally has been. This is journalism here, the very firm rules over here is, you know, narrative fiction, Spielberg, Hollywood and all that. Never the twain shall meet. And we had documentarians, um, Ken Burns, Mm -hmm. who 
is one of my personal heroes. Ken, if you're mm-hmm. listening, I'd love to meet you someday. <laughs> but you know, I look at his technique as a storyteller, and a lot of what he does is straight out of Hollywood because he's telling a story. It's not quite journalism. It's not quite fictional narrative. It's somewhere in the middle. It's that gray zone. And what to me, it's fascinating about this particular area. As a journalist, you can partake. As a fictional storyteller, you can still partake. You just have to be careful how those two blend. I'm wondering for people who are in the business who are have been doing the, you know, there was a liquor store holdup on, you know, on Divine, Fifth and Divine. How do they make that jump out of that into more documentary style, more narrative journalism? Well, I think narrative journalism in a more documentary sense just allows you to be more creative visually and with your script, where day-to-day news just tends to be very kind of cut and dry and very limiting. So the best thing I could tell your students is, to go check out some of the backstories and you can see and judge for yourself and say, you'll probably come away saying, this is similar to a news story, but not really. And not everything is either A or B. I think these days we have many options. Ken Burns is different from Spielberg, which is different from the news, which is different than Mysteries at the Museum, which is different than whatever Dateline's doing. And they're just different things and you have to assess it for, for, for what it is. And, and I, I mostly worry about what I'm doing and I'm still in the news world, and so that means something to, to me. But I, I don't know that the criticism of, of news is all that fair to throw another category in, because I think what happens, and this is my speech to the Moose Lodge and uh, you know the Rotary Club and all these other, the, the, the high school class that I have to teach, people confuse the news with primetime cable, which is not the news, their shows about the news. They're opinion pieces. But it's on CNN. Well, that has news in, in, in the It's on Fox News. Well, that has news. They all have news in their title. So I understand why people are confused. But you've got to separate that. You're not going to turn on ABC News at 530 with David Muir and hear all this opinion stuff that you're going to hear on Fox or MSNBC. So you, you just have to educate yourself as a media consumer and say, what, what am I ingesting here? What is it? And, and it, it always behooves people to... Read the New York Times editorial page and the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Because if you're just immersing yourself in one, you're just in an echo chamber. And I'm not sure you ever learn anything. And you may think, well, those people on the Wall Street editorial page, they're nuts. And when I do read it, I disagree with 99% of it. But there might be some value in in that 1% one day that that may help uh, give you a better perspective. Oppositional research, indeed. Yeah. With our remaining time, I'm wondering if you could give our audience three takeaways. Three takeaways. Well, my when people always ask me, how can I be a better journalist? Tip number one, read a book. Develop your critical thinking skills. Uh, two is uh, get critical feedback on your work. Don't assume you're doing a great job just because your mom says you are. And three, always plan two jobs ahead. Don't go to Rockford, Illinois for 30 grand and go across the street to the competing station for 34 grand just because your boss is a jerk. That does not get you closer to Chicago. So you have to plan your career. And the way to a major market is to be a great hard news reporter or hard news producer. When I ask a student, what do you want to do? And they say, I want to be an anchor. 
You know what that tells me? That tells me you want to you want the glitz and the glamour and or what you perceive to be the glitz and the glamour and uh, the money and you don't want to do the hard work. You should be in this for journalism and reporting is fun. To me, it's far more fun than anchoring, which is why I do backstory on my own. I don't get paid extra for it. Uh, and it's it's become a second full time job. So yeah, I think I think it's it's important to uh, to realize that this is not a nine to five job. You have to go out in the community and find stories at cocktail parties and and meetings and 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 so on and break stories because if you're not breaking stories, you're not ready for the next level. So I, I always tell students who send me a reel and say, I, I can't seem to get out of this market. Let me, and I look at their reel and it's floods and house fires. And I said, look, you need to break stories. You need to get exclusive interviews, stories that you've developed yourself at the very least. If you're not doing that, you're not ready for the next level. You've been listening to Campus on the Common. I'm your host, Mark Brody. This episode's guest was Larry Potash, a reporter and anchor for WGN-TV in Chicago, where he's worked the last 28 years. Larry reports on stories about history, science, religion, and more, and produces his own feature called The Backstory. He graduated from Emerson College with a degree in mass communications and broadcast journalism. He's received 16 Emmy Awards, as well as 13 Dome Awards from the Illinois Broadcast Association. Campus on the Common provides an expert view into the field of media and communication through the lens of academic experts and industry professionals from Emerson and beyond. Lucas Boiser is our producer and chief engineer. Oliver Glass is our associate producer. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College's School of Communication. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.